I'm really looking forward to these weeks together. This new series we're calling Following Their Lead about ways that black theologians help us read the Bible better. But I can tell you there was a time about 15 years ago that this series would have made me uncomfortable and defensive. I know this because I was in a class where I felt just that. Back in seminary, I took one class in Spanish. My colleagues were from half a dozen unique Latin American countries, which by then, thanks to majoring in Spanish in undergrad, I had some sense of which accents came from which region, but more importantly, some sense that this meant that each person came from a nuanced and distinct perspective. I was beginning to practice dismantling one white myth that there's a singular Latino voice or experience, and my fellow students proved it again. But beyond that, I struggled in the class. I didn't know what to make of the scholars we were reading or of the ways they read the Bible. And this was especially true of liberation theology. I distinctly remember writing in a brief response we submitted to a reading that the author was wrong, that there was no preferential option for the poor, like they had argued. It offended my sensibility that God loves us all equally. And I felt no qualms about venting my disagreement because, I realize now, brown theology was optional. I could choose to accept it or not. It was niche. After all, I didn't have to read any of these folks for my main classes. What that class revealed was that I had not thought deeply about how God's equal love expresses itself in a very unequal world. But equal isn't a sentiment. It's an action. God's love is an equalizer. It's a force that acts upon us to create equal for one another when it's missing. And to whatever degree, this final reflection is more on the right track than I was 15 years ago. I owe it entirely to the work of theologians of color because I followed their lead. Here are two things that I've learned since then. One, listening to theologians of color is about what they see in the Bible verses and the stories, which are often things I won't see without their help. And we're going to practice that in the weeks ahead. Two, listening to theologians of color is about what they say about how to read and understand the Bible holistically. And we're going to unpack briefly two key things from black theologians about how to approach the Bible in the first place today. See, to get ready for this series, Curtis did his favorite thing. He bought books. And when this little collection of books arrived, each and every one, prior to diving into the actual verses and stories of the Bible, talked about two things. First, how Western Euro-American interpretation is not neutral or the be-all, end-all. It's not the normalizing standard or the baseline. It is one option, one facet out of many. One of the introductions helpfully offered the dog and bone analogy for how many Western theologians look at interpreting the Bible. It goes like this. The meaning of the Bible is like a fossil or a bone a dog buries in the backyard. The interpreter is the person who digs it up. When the interpreter lifts it up for the world to see, everyone can agree. That's a bone. Meaning, then, is the bone buried in the biblical text, the fossil covered over by time. But all a person needs to do to have the meaning is find the right shovel to dig it up. So if a person simply uses the right shovel, no matter who the person is, what community they belong to, what history they have lived, they'll find the same bone that everyone from every other community or history or culture has ever found, is finding, will ever find. 
The people doing the digging may look radically different, but the bone will always look exactly the same to everyone. This gets called the objective meaning of the Bible or the plain meaning of scripture. It gets called what the Bible clearly says. This is what I revealed I thought back in that seminary class. Whoever this theologian was, this totally different reading of the Bible is not a bone. They had the wrong shovel, obviously, because God loves us all equally. That's the bone. Brad Braxton reminds us that folks who say we're looking for the objective meaning of the Bible, the bone as it were, often neglect context. People sometimes enjoy criticizing something as not objective, implying that the opposite is subjective, mere opinion. You're just making the Bible say what you want it to say. But Braxton offers us a different pair. It isn't objective versus subjective. With the Bible, it's the myth of objectivity versus contextual. Objective versus contextual. If trying to be objective is the dog and bone metaphor, trying to be contextual is hearing the story of an event. Last week, our family toured the elementary school that our older son, Riley, will attend this fall. If you ask Curtis, Riley, and the principal to each tell you the story of the tour, you'll be given three different accounts. And one of them is not the true objective account. They're all true, but they'll reflect the context of a parent, an eight-year-old, and an administrator. Understanding the story depends on being aware of its context. In a similar way, we read the Bible in its context for our context. Reading the Bible with black theologians then reminds us of this truth. Western Euro-American interpretation, it's not neutral. It's not the be all end all and the normalizing standard. Instead, black theologians invite all of us to walk a path out of centering these Western Euro-American experiences and calling them objective and instead walk in the direction of looking for and listening to many unique voices in their unique context. Not so that we can generally expand our thinking, but so we can truly see new things in this Jesus story we're trying to be faithful to. That's the first thing all these writers did. The second was to establish one key lens through which they, as African-American theologians, see the Bible. The lens of liberation. They'd say, we simply must read the story in light of the theme of freedom. We're putting it first in this series then because they put it first in their work. For so many theologians of color, especially but not only African-American ones, liberation, freedom is the dominant narrative of the Bible. The Bible tells the story of a God who made us for freedom and flourishing it tells us how humanity's core sin would be our desire to rule over one another. That's the consequence of sin coming into the world that God describes in Genesis 3 after Adam and Eve eat the fruit. From there, God chooses not to fast track Abraham to the promised land with a thousand grandkids. Instead, God chose to be God's own, the enslaved Hebrews. And the first thing God does for them as a collective is set them free from bondage. All of Genesis is just stories about the first family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The first time we meet the Hebrews as a people, it's Exodus and God raising Moses up to set them free. So the Exodus then is not simply an event. It's a storyline. 
repeated over again. You see it in the exile and the return from exile. You see it in Jesus, who is the new Moses, leading a new exodus for people. Jesus gives the people not only a way of life, but the way to life, freedom from sin, the force that enslaves us, oppresses us. Notice, for instance, how Luke 8 has a heading put there by the Euro-American scholars that says Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. But Luke doesn't only say heals. People rushed out to see what had happened, Luke writes. A crowd gathered around Jesus and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at Jesus' feet, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. And when we say, oh, that's the same, same, I mean... Well, what if it's not? What if conflating forgiven, healed, and free means we miss a really important view of God's work in the world? You see this again in Paul's letters. Like 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, Paul finishes a prompt that we as a group actually talked through together. We had the prompt, Jesus came to, and we discussed some possible answers, Not looking for the one right one, but making the very point that there are many right ways to finish this mission. Paul finishes this same prompt when he says, There is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Again, that's 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. So the legacy of African American theology is to see that the work of God is to set us free. Liberation theology invites us to be honest about the things that trap us so we can experience freedom too. Because if we don't see it, we serve it. We serve these systems and think they work. We think they provide for us. We are loyal to our jobs at times because we serve the system of capitalism. We don't go to therapy because we serve the system of self-reliance. We're loyal to our family's dysfunctional patterns because family meaning we stick to our role and think that either we'd be lost without them or that acceptance is the path of least resistance. You may remember along the way, Curtis has talked about idolatry and identifying idols by finishing the sentence, whatever happens, it'll all be okay because Pharaoh would say, because I'm Pharaoh. Jericho will say, because we've got these walls. The Pharisees will say, Whatever happens, it'll all be okay because we've kept the law. And our culture might say, because I'm a good person. The fact is, what we think will protect or provide for us, what we think will make it okay, our safety net, it's what we worship. And what liberation theologians understand and invite us to see is that all idols enslave All idols enslave. And the systems that get created in order to serve that idol are the very principalities and powers that the Bible says God is so eager to destroy. Which means being set free from our personal sins, it's a piece of this. It's a big one, but it is not the only piece. Because sin isn't just our own choices. It is also a force in the world. It is also the system and structures that trap and enslave. And God is on the side of those victimized by that idolatry. God is on the side of freedom for those oppressed by that idolatry. This is what it means for God to be for us and against sin. And so liberation theology is as big as the 400-year enslavement of Africans and their subsequent fight for equity. 
It is as strong as the centuries-old struggle to truly be as free as they deserve. But it also fundamentally sets out to destroy idols everywhere and oppression everywhere. And so it can also speak to us personally. Now, this isn't like saying my idol of workaholism really is like the enslavement of Africans, man. No, this is like saying God is so great, so big, that God seeks freedom and wholeness for all of us from every and all form of bondage. And for those of us who are white, this can be helpful and important because we do a lot of work to not ever see ourselves as in bondage to anything. We write our own story. We pull up our own bootstraps. We chart our own path. The relentless individualism of whiteness blinds us to the ways we are not in fact writing our own stories, but rather following scripts written by the idols of money, a certain aesthetic, success, educational achievement, professional recognition, family, and more. But being Pharaoh isn't freedom. So as we close here, I'd love for you to go back to this prompt. Jesus came to, and we'll follow the lead of African-American scholars who say, set us free. If you have a moment, either now or you can circle back later, I'd invite you to take some time to reflect, perhaps with a journal or just on your own, on three big things. First, identifying idols that we find ourselves tempted to serve. An idol being anything we'll trust to protect or provide for us. And we can reveal what it might be simply by finishing the sentence. Whatever happens, it'll be okay because. Second, I would love for us to dabble with the ways that um, idolatry gets expressed in our culture or systems. And so your second reflection would be, how does this play out? For example, if you have an idolatry around an aesthetic for our home, for example, whatever happens, it'll all be okay because home is our safe haven. That gets expressed through a system of home stores that think that you need to redecorate your house top to bottom every five years, throw everything you used to own into a landfill, and it gets perpetuated by an HDTV machine that always leaves you slightly discontent with what you have. That is the bigger culture and system that supports and entraps us to this idolatry of an aesthetic. So might your own thing that you're drawn to be spelled out in these bigger places these larger ways. Take a minute to identify that. Third and finally, consider, if those things are bondage, what could freedom look like? In what ways would freedom cultivate love for Jesus, help you live the one another's, neighbor well, or do justice? What is that bondage keeping you from in those four areas? What would freedom make possible? I hope these reflection questions allow you to follow the lead of these black theologians and experience greater freedom and a closer sense of the love of God. Amen.